Hello and welcome to the Customer Insight Leader Podcast. Data, analytics, big data, data science, machine learning, customer insight, behavioral science, blockchain, data ops, data engineering, agile working, phew, too many terms, too many things to think about. Do you as a leader need somewhere to turn, to hear what other leaders are doing, to hear what really makes a difference in your business? Welcome. The Customer Insight Leader Podcast is here for you. Each episode, we'll be interviewing a different leader in the fields of customer insight, data, and analytics to hear what they really do, what really makes a difference. So settle down, get that cup of coffee, and enjoy the Customer Insight Leader Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Customer Insight Leader Podcast, a place to hear from today's leaders in the fields of customer insight, data, and analytics. I'm your host, Paul Lachlan, and with me today is Chris Berg. Chris is the founder, CEO, and head chef at Data Kitchen. Great job title. Love that job title. Chris is a recognized expert on data ops. He's also the co-author of the Data Ops Cookbook and the Data Ops Manifesto, and a speaker on DataOps at many events and actually a lot of other podcasts as well. Chris also continues our collection of transatlantic conversations, as like uh, my previous guests, John Schwabish and Annette Franz, Chris is joining us from the USA today. So he can share the American perspective on this emerging DataOps function. Welcome, Chris. Welcome, and thank you for having me. You're more than welcome. I'm looking forward to the conversation, Chris. Just to clarify for our listeners, I'm broadcasting from Newport, South Wales in the UK. Where are you joining us from today, Chris? I'm on the other side of that lake in Boston, Massachusetts in the United States. Brilliant. Yeah, just only just across the pond, as they say. <laughs> um, a nice, nice city, Boston. Anyway, um, when I first made contact with Chris, I thought his perspective would be a great compliment to our first ever episode on this podcast, when I chatted about data ops with Harvinder Atwal, the CDO at Money Supermarket, and we might, might come back to that as a theme. I feel that Chris will bring the added experience of founding a business to focus on meeting data ops needs. Um, so I'm sure our chat's gonna surface more insights into what you need to know to succeed with data ops, and especially in our focus on these podcasts, to succeed as a data ops leader. So, Chris, I think uh, every guest I've had on these podcasts, I ask them to tell us a bit about their backstory, their career history, if you like, um, right at the beginning. So we get that kind of get to know you context. Could you tell us a bit about your background and why you made the move from software engineering to data and ultimately launching your own business? Oh, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So I, I guess my story begins in the central part of the United States. I was a working class kid and worked my way through college and I taught overseas for a while. And then I you know, had a thought that the software industry would be a good thing. And I was, I was right about it. And I spent about 15 years in various organizations kind of writing code and managing teams, companies mm-hmm. like um, uh, a research lab at MIT, at NASA, at MIT, some startups um, that were in a lot of ways focused on, on customer data and customer analytics and in a very, very early uh, enterprise marketing automation back when there weren't 4,000 companies, there were just four. Um, <laughs> yes. And um, yeah, about 2005, I, I realized that this data and analytics thing was interesting. And I thought it would honestly be a bit easier 
Um, and my <laughs> kids were small and I took a job sort of running uh, teams, running a set of teams that had data engineers and data scientists and did mm -hmm. data visualization kind of for the healthcare industry. Okay. And it turned out not, not to be so easy um, <laughs> because things sort of broke left and right. The, mm -hmm. You were sort of melding together hundreds of data sets and mm -hmm. the data providers were giving us crappy data. And mm -hmm. my boss and our customers were just endlessly asking for new insight and, and really just could not go fast enough. Um, you know, mm -hmm. so, so many times I'd work with engineers and data scientists and we'd say, oh, if we get have a great idea, we'd say it'd take two weeks. And my boss would look at me and say, Chris, I thought that should take two hours and not two weeks. <laughs> and, and, you know, and finally just the, we had hired smart people and they all wanted to do interesting things, right? They had their favorite tools, their favorite mm -hmm. techniques. And so I, I was sort of, I was the COO of that group. And, and how do you make the trains run on time? How do you mm -hmm. live in a world where things break and data is, you know, falls left, falls out? How do you actually let people innovate with their tools and ideas? And how do you do that quickly? Um, because in some ways, the best way and overall, all of my career, and, and this comes from software, people need to see it and touch it first mm -hmm. before they can. And, and if you can give them something 70% right, you can learn and then iterate. And so how do you do all that in data and analytics? Um, and then, you know, I, I sort of spent years trying to figure out the principles. And then when uh, my co-founders and I, who are also at that company, um, we started this business seven years ago, we sort of thought that the pain that we had felt running these teams was a generalizable thing. And this yeah. set of ideas we could pour into software um, and then we did and we realized that no one actually understood what we were talking about and, <laughs> uh, we would go to conferences and we'd wear chef hats and give out wooden spoons and talk data ops and you know four years ago no one people thought we were sort of middle-aged nerdy aliens um, so we had to write a book and a manifesto and and mm. really sort of express in words uh, and stories what the ideas are Make, makes sense Chris thank you thank you for sharing that I I'm struck by a few things. I guess the first thought that struck me listening to your career trajectory is a lot of the time, I guess, these days, one hears of uh, data science graduates, people starting off thinking they kind of want to work in data, but a lot of their early focus is on coding. You know, a lot of the data science grads I talk to, all the concern is to be able to code more effectively in R or Python or, or language of choice. And I know a lot of the, maybe the old farts in analytics like me were concerned that you're thinking all about coding, but there's so much more than coding to good analytical thinking, et cetera. You're, you're someone who's come from a software engineering background. Do you think that's helped you? Or did you think you needed to get a, a new mindset and learn a whole bunch of extra stuff in order to actually apply your coding skill to data analytics? It's been both. It's a help and a hindrance. Um, mm. And so I think, in some ways, the analytical systems that we build, the factories that we build to deliver insights are systems that are governed by code and mm -hmm. the assembly lines that they run are, are sort of programmed. And I think mm -hmm. that's a, an appropriate way to do it in the lessons of DevOps and Agile. But when I took over data and analytic teams, I was confused. I guess I was arrogant that I thought everything was software. Yeah. And I remember about a year into the job, I wrote this memo to myself called There's Two Sons, you know, the sort of process and data. And the world right. of data has its own rules and data is different. And in some ways, you know, what, what we're trying to do, if you like boil it to a hundred thousand foot level in software, 
you're trying to iterate on the experience of the user with the application, right? And mm -hmm. you're trying to learn what works and is this button right? Is this application working the way that they intended? And, and that's great. And you're trying to do that in data and analytics as well. Is the chart right? Is the model right? Yeah. But you've got this other thing on the other side is does the data actually tell the story that you're trying to, to do? Yes. And is the data, can it, is it predictive? Does it even make sense? And so you've got the sort of two cycles that you're working on and it's, it's harder in some ways because it's sort of software plus. Um, and so I think it's, it's, it's a help, but it's also a hindrance. And I had to unlearn some things and I had to also apply some things that I've learned in software. So it's been an interesting, it's an interesting journey. Yeah, no, it's, it's an interesting way to put it. I hadn't heard someone put it that way with the kind of the two sons thing. I, I certainly get the, the challenge, which, one comes across a, a lot with things like data visualization work of the ethical accountability to honest representation of what's there in the data. It isn't just what your stakeholder or user wants. It is truthfully representing the insights that are actually in the data, which will sometimes challenge back. It's almost, I guess, if I'm hearing you right, it's almost like you've got two customers. You're accountable to the data and you're accountable to the business user. Is, is, is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah. And, and both of them can be frustrating, right? Because sometimes, <laughs> yes. I mean, I've spent several months on a project to put some data sets together and, and make predictions that just didn't work out. Because <laughs> yes. the data didn't tell the didn't support the theory. Um, yeah. And that's sort of frustrating, right? When you'd hope that this, um, and then, uh, of course, I've done the same thing in software, where I built an application only to find out it's it's completely wrong and had to re redo it. And so, I think it's um, it, it it is both those things. And yeah, the the data tells um, the data can express certain things. And um, in someone who's looking for insight around a customer, you may hope that your intuition is told out in the data, but mm -hmm. the data may not be able to say it or predict it. Mm -hmm. um, and so, it's important to think of these sort of two things when you're doing, when you're running a team is, is, am I building something that is useful to my, my customer? And that could be the end customer on a website or, you know, your VP of marketing and is the data support that in a truthful way? Yes. 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 I like that. The, the other thing you touched on, you sort of implied earlier and then called it out explicitly, I guess. And I would have expected it um, from someone with your background is agile working. Um, and the way that that, to some extent, transformed the approach in, in DevOps. I wonder how you found that work in the space of data analytics. I, I could see it, I guess, in the more data engineering data ops type work, perhaps. But I, I sometimes hear from data scientists or analytics leaders that they're, they're comfortable with something like Kanban, where you, you can be a little bit more ad hoc, but trying to projectize everything, even if it's into a scrum type methodology or design sprints doesn't always work because there is the exploratory discovery. There is the adaptiveness to what happens in terms of events and needs in the business and what emerges out of the data and you discover. Have, have you run into that at all that agile as designed for DevOps doesn't always work in a data world? It's sort of, it's sort of the same in software. And I think in, in, in the software world, you, you have this term that I've learned called a spike solution, where you're just okay. trying something and maybe it works and doesn't. And, um, you know, you could call it a design sprint or a spike solution. Mm. And, and mm. sometimes you just, it doesn't work and you have to do it all over again. Mm. And I think that's, 
more prevalent in data and analytics and probably even more prevalent in data science that you're just trying to yeah. find out what the data can say yeah. um, and you're sort of spiking around to see that it works. And so I think that's wholly relevant. Um, and I think the, um, the, the idea here is that of all those spikes, of all those ideas that you're putting out, you're trying to find that nugget of value. And yeah. that's sort of a random walk, right? In some ways, and maybe yes, some people yes. are better at it than, than not. Yeah. Um, but to do that, you've got to put data together and you've got to get feedback from your customer. And I think forcing that feedback is really important and not sort of believing your own, uh, sort of believing in yourself that you can figure it out and forcing yeah. yourself to interact and see if, <clears throat> if, if it's actually makes sense because people have to touch it and feel it. Customers have to interact with it in some form. And yeah. so I guess to my, I, I think that's incredibly important. And so if you're spending months building something mm. uh, and it hasn't seen the light of day, to me, mm. that's a, a negative indicator of success. And it's much yes. better to get something 70% right, get some feedback on it early um, yeah. and then learn from that. And, and, the old adage in, in Agile is you're maximizing the amount of work you don't have to do um, yeah. because you're going to end up thinking you had to do 10 things. Um, you're going to realize you didn't, after getting feedback from your customer, you didn't have to do five of them and they're going to add two on. So you're net three better. <laughs> yes. And I think that's yeah. that's an important lesson I've learned, just sort of humbleness in the face of you know thinking I understand the world. Okay. Okay. It's a good, good, good mindset to take. Yeah. And thank you for that, Chris. That does make sense. The kind of mixture of what are spike solutions and a more exploratory i love your use of the, the term random walk in there very very nice um and and then still a bit more discipline really around the execution of of projectizing putting things into place something we might come back to actually but i'm, I'm keen to take that term you you mentioned about lifting our eyes a bit higher the the, the 2000 mile view or whatever um we talked previously about your own journey and uh, how you developed as a leader, as well as someone with such the technical expertise you've shared. And you mentioned this concept of your leadership journey, um, learning the principles that matter. Is that how you see your career? Is, is it, you've talked to us, I guess, about it functionally in terms of where you ended up focusing. What about your leadership journey? Has that been a key part of your career? Yeah, I think so. Because I, I think at some point, you know, you get in your thirties and you've done a bunch of technical work and you're like, well, should I stay doing this? Hmm. Um, and so, or should I try to, you know, program people as well as computers? Like for me, it, it seemed like I, I, I tried to do that a bunch of times. I, I tried to lead small teams and hmm. I bounced back and forth for a bunch of years. Cause it just was hard for me to figure out how to lead teams. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, I got better at it and read books and leadership didn't come naturally. And uh, there are some people who, as much as I'm jealous of them, it just comes naturally. They're just really good leaders. Yeah, um, yeah. And uh, it, it, that wasn't the case for me. And so I had to sort of figure it out. And, and also, I think there's a particular type of leadership that has to do when you're dealing with something, I, I call it a shared, technically complicated thing. And okay. examples of that shared technically complicated thing could be a software project with a back end and a front end and APIs. Okay. It could be a manufacturing line, like a factory, mm -hmm. or it could be a complex analytics system. Mm -hmm. And the behaviors that you want your team to have are perhaps very different than running a political campaign or, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, uh, building a, a one-off sort of art project. And mm -hmm. I think that is, um, 
those lessons, I think, actually have been written down by people and, and discovered over the last sort of 50, 70 years. And, mm -hmm. you know, people like Deming and, and Toyota and, and, and there's people who wrote about uh, the software version of it. Yeah. And it has to do with the fact that we all are working on one thing. And so honesty is really important, like trying to make sure that we understand where the problem is and find the problem fast. Um, and safety is really important that you don't get yelled at for finding problems. Um, and assignment of blame is one of the worst things that you can do. Mm -hmm. And then also being able to change things, make changes quickly and see the results and mm -hmm. then finding bottlenecks uh, in the system are also very important ideas. And they apply to manufacturing lines or software or data and analytics. So I sort of discovered these principles while everything was blowing up on me mm -hmm. and, and <laughs> feeling like I sucked as a leader and like maybe I should go back to coding full time um, and just not wanting to give up because I mm. like my team and um, you know, I just didn't like having data engineers come into my office and cry because they're so frustrated that things are going wrong. And mm -hmm. I felt like, you know, I had an engineer on my 42nd birthday and he was 24 and he was just really upset that he couldn't do well. And I was like, you know, I just didn't want to abandon him. And so yeah. to me, it's the leadership journey is really just trying to figure out how to run teams who mm. are really, you know, trying to give value to customers out of data, first of all, but also trying to provide a good environment for the team members to grow and learn and contribute. Yeah, 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 no, good point. You, gosh, you mentioned a lot in that question. Thank you for your honesty and your openness in this. It's what makes these conversations so rewarding for me too, and I hope for the listeners. Um, as you've been on that journey, then you face things like your, your data engineer crying with frustration, what things have you found have helped you to develop a style that does work? Has it been about just adapting to a whole range of different leadership behaviors in different situations? Or are there any common lessons that you think, okay, yeah, I'm very different as a leader now because I do this and it works? Yeah, and I, I have these phrases that people <laughs> that work with me, like they kind of roll their eyes, but I keep, you know, number one is love your errors. And yeah. I don't mean like your errors. I mean, love them. Like okay. errors are really good things to have because they're really informative about what went wrong and, and how to do better. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, things aren't problems, they're opportunities for improvement. Okay. Right. And I think that is a very important attitude. Um, and, you know, try to get away from sort of the shame and blame culture mm -hmm. um, and trying, because I think people naturally want to create in mm -hmm. these fields. And mm -hmm. I think people who do data analytics, whether they're data scientists or engineers or whatever their ilk are, you know, they want, they believe in data and they want to help people. And, you know, we have in the scheme of things, all of us have these particularly weird set of skills to be able to code or understand data that a lot of the human population, other human population doesn't have. We's and, all know, geeks. We's all geeks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're all geeks. Right. But you know, what percent of the population is geeks mm. and, um, as you get to be an older geek, you realize that, you know, younger geeks need, need, need to work in a good environment. And so you have a responsibility to, to I think, as a leader to build mm -hmm. a system in which people work. And that, that's the only thing you can control. Um, and so like those early days, 2005 and 2006, when things went wrong, one of my first intuitions was I'm going to fire some people and I'm going to, you know, blame somebody for the problem. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think, what Dr. Deming says is 90% of the time, the problem is the system people work in and not the individual. And yes, sometimes people need to be fired. And of course I've fired people. Um, 
and that's not fun, but you only own the system or the processes that people work in. And that's what you, as a leader, that that's what you've got to work on. And I've found that that sort of focus on the systems and processes that people work in and how those translate into an iterative, agile, sort of um, high quality, low error rate way of working is the principles yeah. at which people should drive their teams. And if you get that right, then people actually create more and deliver more customer value. So in some ways, it's not about kind of data silos in my mind, even though that's an important thing. It's about these sort of people and tool and process silos and, and building a, a system that um, you own as a leader and your team owns and improving upon it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good points, Chris. Thank, thank you for that. And I particularly like that emphasis on systemic thinking um, and, and spotting the systemic issues rather than looking to apportion blame. Um, I absolutely agree. There are times you need to, uh, to address underperformance and help people see they're not in the right job for them. But yeah, maybe vast majority of the times we do miss that the system is broken in some ways. Can you think of any examples you could give us of either how you do that systemic thinking and spot the examples or, or something you found where you think, yep, because I didn't look to blame, because I took a systemic view, actually I worked out this was the issue and we changed the system. Yeah, and there's a lot of examples of that. And like the very first thing I, I, I did back in 2006 was I made a quality circle and we took a spreadsheet and every time we had an error of any sort form the data was wrong the data was late we screwed up yeah uh, yeah something like that we put it in the spreadsheet and then every sort of three weeks we looked at the spreadsheet and looked for common patterns and said well what can we do to address just one of these problems um, yeah. and fix it and after six months or a year you know what the level of errors went down because we'd started to look at yeah. the upstream problems you know and and, and finding out what the what the, the core reason is for it. And that sort of um, also took the shame from the team out of it and the blame, because mm. we were just, mm. we had put it on a piece of paper, we were talking about it, we were improving it. And then when things went wrong, people would start to say, let's put it on the list. Let's see if we can mm. fix it. And I think that attitude really helped. And it's a very like incredibly simple thing mm. um, if you mm. think about it, but it has um, psychological attitudes and I think it changes the way. And also from a leader, it changes your focus because a lot of times leaders want to hide their errors, right? They want to say, oh, they don't want to talk about that we delivered. Yeah. Um, and we put the most embarrassing things wrong. Yeah, we delivered wrong data for the last three weeks. <laughs> and like, oh, whoops. And, and yeah. you know, I think that's... Um, you know, that's the great fear of everyone in data and analytics. And I think you need to kind of, um, as a leader, you need to sort of push towards the sort of bear in the cave. And that's part of your leadership journey is to say, look, this is bad stuff. And, and we did it. And let's figure out how not to do it again. Yeah, good, 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 good points. And I'm glad to hear that systemic focus in, in what is in, in other language or retrospective, because I, I think sometimes in in agile working too many times those kind of retrospective sessions are almost blame blame game sessions but you're right you you should be bringing that systemic problem solving together to to spotting some root cause things that you could address that's that's good to hear chris you you mentioned um or you've alluded to manufacturing a couple of times the sort of factory metaphor and i know we talked about this and um, when we talked previously as well i'm i'm 
absolutely convinced, and I can see it from, from what you've said, from what a number of other people I've interviewed on these podcasts have said, that data ops work, data engineering work, fits really well with a, with a manufacturing metaphor, with all that sort of focus on, on execution and process. Do you think that also applies to, without suggesting, this is an unfair way to put it, but I'll use this language, the more creative customer analytics or customer insight type work? Do you think they also need to get with the, the manufacturing metaphor? Yeah, actually most of my career has been dealing with customer data. And, and so, um, you know, people in marketing and sales tend to be extroverted and, and very loud when things go wrong. So um, one of the things is you want to run a factory that produces, you know, Toyota Camrys or and not sort of AMC Pacers, which are crappy American cars from the okay. 70s. Okay. Um, and, and you just don't want to, and the thing of it is you run a manufacturing line, right? Data is coming in and you have stations on that assembly line. And sometimes they're called data science or data engineering, or sometimes mm -hmm. it's a visualization tool. And there's, mm -hmm. you know, a hundred billion dollar market and tools of the workstations, but they're going through a step-by-step -step process where data is being put together. Artifacts like visualizations are being created. And finally, the thing, the the result comes out, you know, the car comes off the mm -hmm. assembly line, the dashboard, the, the spreadsheet, whatever comes off that people are going to use. And mm -hmm. so you want really, you want to think about that because data is flowing through and being manufactured and mm -hmm. um, really focusing on having the end results, having low errors, right? Because that's a really important thing. And that's sort of what Toyota focuses on. Let's just, and sometimes the error is the result of your supplier. Sometimes mm -hmm. it's the error is the result of your manufacturing. And I think ideas of statistical process control, the sort of Deming-like uh, ways to look at um, where errors come from, the sort of idea of the theory of constraints that there's bottlenecks yes. in this process. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all those things apply. And so everyone who does data and analytics runs a manufacturing line, whether it's of any, of any form. And it doesn't matter whether the data is streaming or batch, it's still... <laughs> big or small, it, it, you know, unstructured or structured, it's still, you're still assembling components together. And I think that's a really important metaphor and you want to, you just want a, a good assembly line, I think. So, um, I don't know. How, how does that sound? Yeah, no, I, I get that, Chris. Um, and there's lots I would agree with there. I guess I'm, and I can visualize some people in my mind as I'm doing this. I could, I can imagine some analysts or some data scientists feeling Yes, but, yes, but I need to have the freedom to explore, make scientific discovery, run with something, then give up with it. And you're trying to impose lots of project and process on me. This isn't a production line. This is a creative endeavor or a scientific exploration you don't understand. Do you, do you ever get that kind of challenge? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and there's a lot in there. Um, and so I, I do think data and analytics is a creative endeavor and it does require a lot of exploration and not everything's mm. production. And so mm. in some ways as a data and analytic leader, you've got one major process, the production process that you want to run, whose yeah. purpose is to deliver insight consistently on time with low errors. But then you have this completely perpendicular process that's, <laughs> yes. that is that you also have to own, right? Which is mm. taking a little bit of the assembly line, or in fact, the whole assembly line, changing some pieces of it and seeing if that matters, mm. right? And, mm. and exploring, maybe you're adding new data, maybe you're retraining or tweaking a model, maybe you're changing the visualization. 
And you want to see if that works. And that's that random walk. And the data scientist is right. It is an exploration thing. And but the other part is that, as everyone knows, once you find something good, your customer is going to want it every week and going to yes. want to send yes. it out to a thousand people on the sales force. And so the deployment of those ideas back into production is an incredibly important process. So it's those two processes that in, in almost a T that are set that are really, they are really opposite of each other, honestly, the innovation process and the production process. And that's where a lot of people, I think, who have been in data and analytics roll their eyes at the idea of data ops. Because what we are saying is that you can run a system in production with incredibly low errors and you can change it really fast. And that just makes a lot of people's hair stand on the end, right? Because <laughs> it's like, oh man, I guess got something working and you want me to change it, you're full up. But it turns out that best in class organizations who follow data ops principles, just like best in class organizations who follow DevOps principles can do both at the same time. Mm -hmm. And that is the set of things that you want to achieve because that's what your customer wants at the end. They, they, yeah. Want, yeah. they want it to be perfect. They want to trust the data and they want you to change it. Because they got they got a whole a bunch of questions, and once there's something valuable, they want to distribute it out to the world as fast as possible, and then get you on to the next thing. Yeah, completely agree. Completely agree. You have got both challenges. Maybe that's why it's funny you use the T shape. It kind of immediately made me think of T shaped leadership, and maybe that is part of the challenge. That as a data leader, you've got to be able to be in both those mindsets. You are a a rigorous, almost process control type leader, but you're also capable of having the scientific curiosity and the creative endeavor to, to innovate and to stay focused on what you're trying to understand through the proxy of the data as well. It's uh, God, it's, a, it's a rich role of data leader, isn't it? So that's much that's right. And that, that's, what's really cool about it. Right. Cause like, you know, it's one thing to be a scientist and just experiment. Right. And it's fun. Mm. And like, okay, mm. somebody else has got to figure out how to make, make this real, mm. but you've also got to make it real. Um, yeah. You've got to run it and, and you own the result. And I think that's those living and really realizing that those two completely divergent processes are what you own as a leader yeah. and perfecting those and improving upon those will end up giving more insight to your customer. And yes. so a lot of times people who lead analytic teams, they kind of feel like they go into work with a backpack full of requests, you know, yeah. and like, I just got to service this backpack. And the more I pull things off the backpack and I do them and I get them out, um, the better I'm going to be. And yeah. I think to me, what I realized was that just doing that servicing thing was just a treadmill to mm -hmm. Depression, almost to like, yeah, you know, yeah, it just, yeah. it just wasn't. I wasn't happy, and so um, I had to sort of think about um, that in a different way, and and thinking about it in the sort of manufacturing but innovation contrast is really like a lot of things. There, there's duality, and and you've got to handle both. And I think, I, and, and I think, you know, the principles that we've talked about that come from manufacturing. Um, are the same because, uh, you know, on a Toyota line, they want to change their cars and improve their cars all yeah. the time. Um, yeah. And so it's there's always innovation processes intersecting to production processes. Yes, yes, yes. And I completely agree. Fun funnily enough, it puts me in mind and it might just be because of the statistics focus I've got at the moment in this month's Custom Inside Leader blog. But puts me in mind also of the reproducibility challenge in, in academic work. You know, you've got this 
creative researchers trying to find new things, but they also need to have the statistical rigor to be able to deliver re reproducible results. It is kind of, again, the, the innovation and the discipline. It yeah, is, it yeah, is and I think that's, but that's what, that's what makes it exciting, right? That's what makes it a fun job yeah. Um, yeah. And, and why, you know, why we get paid the big bucks. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Okay, let's not go on any further without recognizing you as an author. So I know you know Harvinder Atwell as well, who was my guest on episode one. Yep. Um, one thing you share in common is both having written books on data ops. I'm sure you've probably read both of them, or hopefully your own anyway. <laughs> so could you give us an idea of how your latest book is, is similar to Harvinder's practical data ops, or is it very different? I think that they're, they're more similar than not. I think, I think his book is a better read um, from start <laughs> to finish. Ours is... Um, We've been trying to, we, we basically have been blogging, right? And we took mm. a lot of our blog posts and stitched them together in a book. So it's okay. it's sort of more, um, and I think we've got more pictures than in Harbinger's book because I'm a, I'm a <laughs> kind of a believer that people scan first yes. and scan pictures and then actually decide whether it's worthy to read. Okay. Um, and, and ours has got a little bit more technical bent to it because I'm an engineer and there's a little yeah. bit more detail on and a little bit more um, discussion of, of, how you would frame and, and do data ops. So like we talk about, you know, the details of version control or the details of testing and a bit more, but I, I, I you know, Harbinger's great and this book is great. So I'd recommend both. And ours is free. So you can just like download it. So there's there no cost go. to try. <laughs> you, you know, it makes sense listeners. Okay. Um, thank you for that. That's useful to clarify, Chris. I, I want to also go back to You've mentioned within our kind of discussion about the T-shape, uh, a few times you've mentioned this kind of responsibility or accountability to the end customer. For, for a lot of listeners on this podcast, that's their own internal business. We had um, a couple of recent blog posts on Customer Insight Leader blog written by Harry Powell, who's the Data and Analytics Director at Jaguar Land Rover, again, a manufacturing firm, there we go. Um, and they deal with the challenge of what metrics you use to measure the success of your analytics or data science team? How can you kind of prove ROI, that, that kind of work? I wonder whether out of what you've learned, Chris, you've got a view of how data ops or analytics teams should measure their success. What should be the metric? Well, you would think that it's like amount of new valuable insight delivered per period. <laughs> mm, like that's mm, the ultimate success. Are you delivering cool stuff that that changes the direction of the business? But then mm. when you peel that back a bit, it's like, was it the insight or was it the activity that the insight actually engendered that delivered mm -hmm. the value? Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, I, I think that's incredibly hard to quantify, right? And, and, and it's also a matter of perception. And so I tend to think in a different way. And I, I think that there are metrics about how your team works and okay. how much and those are are good proxies for the value of insight that you that you give because i, I fundamentally have not anyone successfully say you know through surveys that you know we're producing this quarter we produce 10 more bits of insight than last quarter it's just it's so fuzzy um, and i think if you actually start focusing on these metrics of production like we have delivered we have we weren't late this whole quarter we only had one major error this last year. Um, mm -hmm. And because mm -hmm. I talked to, I asked this question, how many errors do you have? And I've had talked to healthcare insurance companies and they say, yeah, they're very proud that they only are down to one major error a month. 
I'm like one a month. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I didn't want to say that, but that's like way too many. Like you shouldn't ever have major errors, right? You should find out if there's problems in the data. So I think error rates are an important thing. And then I also think um, the sort of productivity metrics of your team, how mm -hmm. fast they're deploying to production, mm -hmm. how many deploys, how many, however you measure the features that you're doing, I think are, are incredibly uh, important. So error rates, the measurements of, of, of cycle time, I think, and, and by proxy, the productivity, I think are, are important. And then, because um, those things are what you can control, right? You yep. can control errors, you can control cycle time. Mm -hmm. The amount of insight you create and the value of the insight are a little bit harder to control. And I, I also think it's just, these are process metrics that you should, if you believe in being data-driven, you should be data-driven about how your team works. Um, and yeah. so not knowing how much work an individual is doing and whether they're mm -hmm. productive or not, or where their time goes, I think is a, is a miss for a data and analytics leader. Yeah, that makes sense, Chris. I, I, I can see the importance of the, the quality focus on, on error rates. You know, Toyota's got a, a lot of, a lot of kudos on this episode, so that's great. Um, and I can see the, the importance of thinking about throughput or cycle time as well. That, that, that makes sense. I guess if I was going to take a contrarian view, it might be, that could sound like an efficient production line for just continually giving people more of the same. Where's the innovation? Where's the something new that genuinely really moves the needle in the business? Is there any way that you, I don't know, get feedback or something to give you a, a view that you are also innovating and transforming? You're not just a reliable production line for more of the same. Yeah, and I think that that is really the measure of your cycle time and number of deploys and also the, the measurement of the new work your team's doing, right? The number of, whether okay. you measure it as feature points or story points or tickets, that is kind of the volume of, of innovation that's going in. And, and where I do have the problem is like, how do you value an innovation? How is one innovation mm -hmm. worth higher than another? And I think that's perhaps qualitative and maybe that's done through surveys or done in some other way. But um, what I found is, and it's also sort of data trust is also another fuzzy metric. Um, mm -hmm. And so those things I think could be measured through sort of like NPS scores or surveys or, mm -hmm. you know, of, of your, your team. But um, the things that I think you can actually get quantified are how much, you know, how many features did you deploy? How long did it take to deploy? You know, and, and as well as those, you know, sort of production line uh, metrics. And I think both those, that T, you know, those, mm. that intersecting T, those two processes that we control, mm. um, I think uh, have their own metrics that we, that, that I think it's important for data and analytics leaders to track and measure because it shows that they're awesome. Right. Yeah. And, and at least if, you know, I believe I've delivered good insight, but my boss says, eh, it probably wasn't that important. Look at all the work we've done. Look at how, how well it's the, the, the engines run. Yeah. Yeah. I get that. I get that. And I do think it matters, Chris. So, Listeners might find it interesting to read Howie's posts as well. I think both both of you heard together a really useful compliment. Okay, um, I want to continue our focus on on leadership, Chris. Uh, I recognise you as someone who's got a, a passion to keep kind of learning and growing. So, what what are you still developing in? We've talked a lot about leading your team and helping your team. How are you still actively developing as a leader? Oh no, I'm I'm really good at it. I don't need to do it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I wish that was true. Um, so a, a couple of things. So one thing is I'm I'm leading a small company, right? So it's, yeah. I, I need to learn how to be a CEO. So I'm in this mm. group 
of a, of a CEO forum. Mm. And it's actually really helpful because it's sort of a, a safe space for uh, with a bunch of other CEOs where we can give each other feedback. And as part mm. of that, we have this book club. So this last weekend, I read this book called Unleashed. It's sort of a, yeah. a, a book about how to kind of unleash the potential in your employees by kind of, you know, focusing on really serving them and supporting them, which is something, you know, something I believe. Um, mm -hmm. And so to me, it, it really is about finding peer reflection and, and, and the continuing learning process. Um, and then the, the third thing I'm doing is actually I've had a couple of the people who work for me ask me questions about how I became a technical leader. So just this last week, I put made a presentation of my journey as a technical leader, and I'm going to give it to them for the first time. And, and maybe it'll be embarrassing and boring for them but like you know some people who are in their 20s they're just interested in Absolutely. this thing. um and and how you know how they transform so I'll, I'll tell the story around that and see if they like it that that's great chris glad glad to hear all of that i um i mean i've personally also seen the power of, of mastermind groups and getting together with other people who lead their own business um completely believe in book clubs and uh, those who lead read so uh, completely with you on that, but also want to encourage you with that, uh, sharing your own technical leadership journey. I think technical leadership is still much less well understood than general leadership. And those who have succeeded should should throw down the, the rungs of the ladder for, for others to find out what's worked, what they might like to try. It's, it's, it's important, I think. So well done. No, thank you. Yeah, and I think it's, um, it, it's there's more now there's more books than when I was, you know, kind of coming mm. up and, and, mm. um, and I think the idea of engineering or data and even just data leadership is itself being, there's a lot more chief data officer conferences, a lot more people yep. are talking about skill development of their team, career paths, um, how to manage this sort of, you know, incessant customer demand and crappy data and process challenges. And I think, I think that's really good actually for leaders to have peers because we're all kind of, it doesn't matter if you're, you know, Jaguar or Amazon, we're all kind of, you know, data is data and, and the, yeah. the challenges are sort of the same. And, you know, there's particulars in different industries and particulars in different data sets, but I think it's good to have, to talk to other people. Um, and that's why I think podcasts are actually really good because it's, it's nice to have people, you can hear people while you're taking, you know, you're walking the dog and learn from yeah. their experience. Well, I'm going to agree with you on that, Chris. Yeah, podcasts of the future. <laughs> no, th thank you. No, agree with that. Okay, let's actually latch on to the, the other end of that equation then. I'm aware that uh, a portion of people who, who follow my podcast are much younger, probably earlier in their career. So I, I always ask the leaders who are on these episodes to think about that community. For those who are maybe starting out in their data analytics careers, not sure what to focus on, what to develop, Given what you've experienced, what skills or knowledge would you encourage them to develop in order to get on in their careers? Yeah, so in this engineering presentation, I have a couple of equations at the beginning. And okay. so the first equation is that EQ is greater than IQ. And mm -hmm. EQ is sort of your emotional quotient. And mm -hmm. I think, um, you know, leadership is, is about connecting with people and inspiring them and also knowing yourself. Mm -hmm. And so I think um, your emotional intelligence sort of dominates at, at leadership and, and you can be the smartest technical person, but uh, I think we all know that sometimes the smartest technical person fails at being a leader. Yeah. And so EQ, your intelligence, your emotional intelligence is it dominates leadership and is more important than IQ. Not to say being, you know, IQ is not important, mm -hmm. 
So I think that's, you know, that, that's one equation. And I think um, the second is really influence is just much greater than power. And so mm. we're all cynical, nerdy people. And, you know, if someone tells you what to do, you're going to do it. But like after a while, you're just going to roll your eyes and you really have to influence people. You have to get them to believe in the logic and clarity of what you're saying. And influence doesn't necessarily mean that you're in charge of people. There's very influential for people in organizations who are not the boss. Yeah. Um, and so I think really influence is sort of is greater than power. And, and the last thing I think is, is sort of service um, and, and serving others is more important than kind of getting things from them. And so, you know, it's, it's really about the, there's this term servant leadership and leadership is service that you provide to your team. And so I think that that is about helping them be successful and helping them achieve their, their goals and building a process and a set of environments that they can, they can excel. And so it's about EQ, it's about influence, it's about service, those things really matter. And that's, kind of, you know, not so much on, I'm an individual tech contributor, right? Because I can pound a lot of, I can create a, a model fast, right? Well, that's more IQ than EQ. Um, and I've got the power over the machine to be able to do it. And so they're a very different way. And I think that's partly why, you know, some people are good at it, but partly why I stumbled for years. It's just to like change my mind um, and uh, to be able to do it. And I also think it just helps you grow as a person, right? And maybe yeah. a better husband, maybe a better father, yeah. Um, all those things sort of went together and, and kind of kind of growing up and, and growing into being a better leader. Yeah, so much interrupt you there, Chris. Yeah, completely agree. You know, with you with you completely as a, from my own experience and as a mentor, um, uh, agree completely on the importance of that. Uh, I would encourage people to focus more on that. I think with so much social media out there encouraging analysts and data scientists to pick up those new languages, understand the new model approaches, etc. We need to speak up the voices for softer skills and emotional maturity as well. It's, uh, yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, you need to know how to program your team. Yeah, it's an interesting way to put it. And I, it's I, a completely I, different language. It is, it is, it is, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, and sometimes it doesn't compute, but that's another, it that's another episode. Compute. Yeah, yeah, it's just not. <laughs> um, Final question. Uh, I, this has been great, Chris. The, the final question I've, I've asked everybody on here, which I shamelessly stole from Dave Stahoviak's simply wonderful Coaching for Leaders podcast, because I love it as a question. He, he quite often asks guests at the end, can you give us an example of something you've changed your mind on in the last few years? And, and I ask leaders this question because I want to highlight to our listeners, even very successful leaders are still growing and changing and evolving, and that's good. So what about you, Chris? What have you changed your mind on in recent years? Um, well, I think that one of the things is coming from a technical background and partly one of the things that I've had to devote a lot of cycles to is trying to explain the concept of data ops and why it, why it matters mm. is the power of sort of stories over logic. Mm. Um, and so mm. I think... Um, in a lot of ways as human beings, or at least as, as sort of our data and analytic nerd folks, we, we we're pretty good at sort of stripping things off and seeing the logic underneath. Mm -hmm. And like, if you can strip everything away, but most people aren't like that, right? Most people need something to encase the logic and, and yeah. the story is, is a really good way. And there's this experiment I did in graduate school by Lagrenzi and Lagrenzi, where I gave 
some people a logical syllogism that was in the form of a syllogism and then in the same syllogism in terms of a, a written story okay. and like 99 percent of the people understood the syllogism in the story and only like five yeah. percent understood it in terms of a logic statement yeah but they were both the same they were equivalent mm -hmm. so stories matter and, and i think for me I've gone less more towards stories and more towards personal stories because mm. I think stories that talk about where I'm involved, I think are more powerful for people. And, and that also means kind of being vulnerable uh, and kind of saying, you know, what, where the pain was and where the mistakes were. Mm. So I think I've leaned more into stories, lean more into vulnerability because I think those are ways that can create connections with people, yeah. create trust. And if, you know, if you've got trust, then, you know, with your team and with your customers, you have a degree of love and that love actually makes things work. Um, and maybe it sounds flaky that stories lead to trust. Trust leads to love, love leads to success. But mm -hmm. I think that's, you know, I think that's, that's sort of the way I'm understanding how people work. And so um, being vulnerable and telling stories is part of that. Brilliant. Brilliant. I love it. Humanizing the world of data. And I'm, I'm completely with you on the power of stories. I think uh, I'm often delighted at the um, amount of work I do on data visualization training and things like that, because there's a great focus on data viz. But I'm often reminded or I reflect on people also need to really hone their storytelling skills and their the human connectivity skills as well. And I, I love that focus on vulnerability, Chris. Thank you for sharing that. Okay, that's great. Thank, thanks for that, Chris. Many thanks for your time today as well. It's been a pleasure to chat to you. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. I'm glad. I'm, I'm glad we had a chance to talk. Me too. Me too, Chris. Uh, and thank you, everybody, for listening. I hope you found that helpful and continue to listen to the Customer Insight Leader podcast. More great interviews coming up. And each week, there's also fresh content on our blog, customerinsightleader, or one word, .com. So you might want to check that out too. Before then, thanks everyone, including Chris, for your time. Have a good week, and however locked down you are at the moment, stay safe, keep well, and bye for now.